You'd be surprised if nobody's ever heard of chartalism. Everybody's heard of Bitcoin, but nobody's ever heard of NMT. I mean, the NMT guys really need to do a better job with their public relations. <laughs> Unless you're very online on Twitter, you probably haven't right. heard of it. What is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who study philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. Oh. Oh. Yeah, it's Troy's birthday, and he's out with uh, his girl doing some birthday celebrations right now. And uh, so it's just me today, but I'm doing an interview with Colin Drum, who is... Um, did PhD research on money, the history of money, and um, who kind of has a really interesting, I would say, diverse, eclectic background of interest in like Shakespearean tragedy and ancient uh, and ancient Greek tragedy, but also a deep understanding of, let's say, an empirical analysis of the history of money and monetary regimes and. Um, with a particular expertise, I think he says, on like 14th, 15th century England and um, how it is that we can understand um, a lot of our political and economic tensions pertaining to money and government, uh, fiscal policy and uh, the politics that surrounds all of that and how we can understand the history of money as informing that. And he has a a really interesting way of kind of like navigating beyond a Marxist conception of money and the politics that surrounds that as well, while also kind of like taking seriously the introduction of MMT, that's modern monetary theory, but then moving beyond that story, which is the ch- called the chartalist story, and moving beyond that and kind of creating this this third position that is his own sort of unique position. And so it's a really great chat. It's um, a wide-ranging chat that talks about all the way like back to ancient Greece and even a little bit prior to ancient Mesopotamia, but then goes all the way up through, you know, Tudor England and beyond and then up to kind of present day. So it was a great chat, um, and uh, I think y'all should uh, definitely check out his work. Colin also runs the what's called the Mimbris School. It's the M-I-M-B-R-E-S Did I spell that right? M-I-M-B-R-E-S school. And they are a a para-academic institution, intellectual institution. And the way that I describe it when chatting with him is that they are kind of this ongoing collective of um, of scholars and researchers and non-professional academics and some professional academics, but people who are interested in intellectual pursuits and understanding the world deeper and better, we might say. And doing so within a really great forum that I recommend y'all check out. It's really affordable to become a member. It's 10 bucks a month for like the basic entry point to the Discord and then accessing all of the seminar archives. And then, of course, if you want to take like live classes and things like that, they have uh, really affordable class offerings as well. But um, I'll put a link down below in the show notes so y'all can check that out because I've recently become a member within the last few months and I've powered through their class on money. I've powered through their class on race and finance and I'm halfway through their class it's called like a prelude to Rome, which goes all the way back to Rome to help us understand certain um, monetary constructions and inventions and interventions um, of, of Rome that help us understand kind of just the history of money and some of the tensions that emerge there from more, more broadly. So really great stuff. I uh, had a really great chat with Colin. So check this out. And uh, yeah, 
Thank you very much for tuning in. And there won't be a Sticky Leaves today, and there won't be a sign-off, but uh, I just wanted, and there's no shitty minute, so I'm just going to jump straight into the uh, the main chat with Colin. And uh, yeah, love y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the discussion. Peace. All right, sick. So as I said at the top of the show, we've got another guest this week. Colin Drum is joining me. I'm going to call him Dr. Colin Drum because I know how much he <laughs> loves the institution uh, of, of academia. How much? How does that grate you when someone calls you Dr. Colin Drum? Nobody, nobody ever does. I think you're the first person who's ever called me that. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. There we go. Um, well, I, I wanted to have you on the show because I actually got a copy of your dissertation maybe about two years ago from a friend of mine named James Cullum. Have you spoken uh, with James Cullum? Yeah, yeah. We've, we, we corresponded. I haven't, I don't know. I don't talk to him every day, but we, we were in touch. Yeah. And he was like, dude, you got to read this guy. Um, his dissertation is sick. James is one of those guys. He actually works in kind of the finance sector and he, uh, is, he wrote a PhD dissertation on liquidity and he has lots of frustrations with kind of like Orthodox Marxism, but also with the whole craze of MMT, which I think is kind of a similar kind of tearing point, tension point for you as well. And so I think, um, he writes a lot. He has a blog. It's called like Blue Notes, I think, for mm -hmm. that's attached to the ANZ Bank where he works, um, where he writes about MMT and and other issues pertaining to kind of like um, like structured finance and things like that. And um, and so I met him actually through a mutual friend of ours named John Roth, who wrote a book called Abstract Market Theory. And uh, John Roth is a Deleuze scholar. And it's like he wants to take Deleuze and a guy named Raymond Rouillet and take them very seriously and create um, a theory of the market. But it's building off of some, kind of some of the work in critical finance theory, particularly a guy named Eli Ayash, who I don't know if you've read Ayash's work, like the blank swan or medium yeah. of contingency and shit like that, who's like taking the ideas of hyper contingency from Mayasu and then taking Deleuze's idea of univocity and trying to create what he calls an ontology of the market. So Roth comes along and is like, yeah, 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 I dig what you're doing. We should be critical of like probabilistic theories and things like that and embrace some sense of radical contingency, but he wants to kind of flesh it out with some meat and bones and actually create um, something that will allow us to understand what he calls the market as an archive of prices, right? So this was like a, this was what brought James and I together was kind of like the John Roth. We were interested in that because both of us are interested in Deleuze and and, and whatnot. So anyway, you, you come into the the story then and I'm like, fuck, okay, so I trust James. So I'm like, I gotta, I gotta check this guy's workout. And then I found the Mimbris school and um, I love what you're doing. And I've actually chatted with a couple of colleagues about it. And they're like, let me tell you, bro, there are people that are jealous of what you're doing because, you know, people feel real hamstrung within academia, right? With what you can and yes. cannot do or say. And they're like, man, like, I wonder if that's like a viable thing for us to do sort of thing. And so you started this Mimbris school and um, this will be my way of introing you and then I'll pass the baton to you. The way that I see it as... And, and at least the way that you seem to facilitate the discussion in the seminars is like this ongoing, this this total ongoing collective research project that does have like some sense of a hierarchy. There are people who are like, you know, faculty and 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 whatnot. And also Sean Capener, I guess, is an associate now who's someone that I've yes. communicated with when I was doing some some writing a couple of years ago, who his his dissertation is also fantastic. Right. On time. Um, which is kind of like a central interest of me with time and, and finance. And so I'm like, oh, these people that are doing these kind of amazing things, but it's like this, this endless open-ended research project where you are all exploring these seemingly diverging 
issues, but figuring out some sense in which you can explore their cross resonances and, and divergences and things like that. And so it sounds amazing. And all that to say also for people out there, check out the Mimbres School. It's M-I-M-B-R-E-S School. Really affordable way to get access to classes, archived um, seminars, things like that. I've blown through the course on money, the course on race and finance, and um, halfway through the prelude to Rome, which is really important to your story for how you understand money. So that that's kind of how you came into my world. And, um, and I'm just really interested in what you have to say about what you think money is, why you're frustrated with Marxism and why you're frustrated with MMT. And what's this other position that you kind of, um, that you set up for yourself and what you're trying to do? Yeah. So, well, you've, you've asked a couple, two slightly different questions, one about the member school and one about my research, um, which are not wholly different, but, but yeah, if there were if there were just my research, there wouldn't be the member school. I, uh, so, <laughs> so yeah. So I, I guess well, you know, maybe I'll start talking off a little bit about that, and then we can get into the, the money stuff more specifically. I mean, cool. You know, you know, basically, I um, started looking for my exit from academia uh, around the time that I was writing my qualifying exam, um, which would be God, I think two thousand. 17 or so um i had a number of uh just frustrating experiences in academia that that made it really clear that that's not what i wanted to do with my life um but i did mm -hmm. want to be an intellectual um and so you know the question is well how can you how can you fund that um yeah. uh, because you know i was at the university of santa cruz and you know, I mean, they weren't paying enough, us enough money to even pay your rent, you know, I mean, so, so you're really yeah. going and you're, you know, you, you have to have outside sources of funding in, in, in some ways, you know, whether that's your family's money, whether that's you're working in an extra job. Well, people, people forget this too, but Marx had an angles, right? Yes. So <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone, yes. well, every, all, all good, all good um, petite bourgeois and bourgeois um, outcomes have come from some source of funding. So, right. Well, you know, I mean, the, um, the university intellect, the professional university intellectual is a creature that's only a couple hundred years old, really. Um, mm. And well, it's not philosophy's best era. Although that's another topic uh, for another, another time, maybe. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, it, there's there's no law from the sky that says in order to be an intellectual, you have to work at a university. Um, mm. Although acad academics are somewhat cowardly creatures and and don't. Uh, I think feel stuck there um, in in ways that really mm -hmm. disempower themselves. But you know, so I started looking for an out, and and I just started running a Patreon page. I, I had developed a little bit of a following on Facebook, uh, posting about politics, and um, well, really, I I started posting uh, in the wake of a controversy at Reed College, uh, which is where I got my bachelor's degree over the classics curriculum that is mandatory. Um, was it like a great book school? Well, sort of. Yeah, the the, the okay. Hume one hundred and ten, which is the great, which is the great books class, was mandatory. But it's okay. it, uh, it's just one class as opposed. So it's not it's not like St. John's where it's the whole curriculum in okay. the the so called great books. Um, but yeah, it was yeah, yeah. it was it was part of it. So I um you know so so this became an object of controversy because uh, Reed, of course, in Portland, Oregon, um which is a very white city. Um, I know not everybody is listening to this probably from the U.S. doesn't uh, necessarily know about Portland, right? But a, a ostensibly very progressive city that actually has a, a very deep history of white supremacy in Oregon mm -hmm. um, and, uh, had, you know, had been making a push to recruit more Black students without thinking about 
the you know whether how exactly they would sell this this great books curriculum you know, potential tensions between um uh, making a push to to change the student body as a matter of policy and and the curriculum and and so there was a group of of students who essentially protested the course um and this became a an object of of uh, flame wars and the, the fairly active uh, read alumni community. Anyway, so I was a participant in, in these arguments and developed kind of a following from there and, and was pushing out politics. So so I had this following and and I said, well, why don't I just try to, you know, monetize this following instead of spending my time applying for grants and stuff, which is a really mm -hmm. um, kind of soul crushing activity, I think, by design. Right. So so I so I started um, I did for a little bit, uh, like I basically a lecture podcast, you know, I did, um, you can, I think it's still up. It's, it's on the first book of Plato's Republic. So I would basically, I would do like a 45 minute thing where I would read like three pages of it. And I, I had intended to do the whole thing, but it, it turned out to be more work than I had intended it to be. Um, hmm. so I switched over to, to giving these seminars basically where I started out and we, you know, we met once a month and, uh, we just recorded on zoom and I, some, you know, um, one of the people who showed up to that seminar um, was a friend of somebody I knew on Facebook, uh, Jules, uh, who um, really impressed me with uh, her contribution. I was like, oh, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving this seminar kind of it's, it's on stuff that I'm thinking about as part of my research, but you know, you're, you're really bringing something to the table. You're teaching me as much as I'm teaching uh, you. Mm. And and so I decided to give her a turn leading the class. So so when we finished that class, we switched over and we had her uh, lead. And and it kind of grew out of that, you know, momentum of basically, you know, when people show up to the school, um, you know, we we are really a kind of a one room schoolhouse. I mean, we have people with PhDs sitting in the class with what our target audience, which is the twenty five year old college dropout, somebody who is too smart, realized college was yeah, a scam, yeah. dropped out of it. <laughs> And now they they want something. They're they're 25 years old. They're old enough to sit down and start reading some books. And so and so and so we sell them that. So you know, so we have people coming with all kinds of knowledge backgrounds. Um, but you know, some people you know come in and, and it's like, wow, you know a lot. Um, and so we've created mm -hmm. the faculty out of out of those people. So we have, um, as you mentioned, you know, we actually do insist on the hierarchy in our space, which is something that people find often very I, disturbing. I know. Yeah, I, and, I I liked that. Actually, I, I I've been thinking about this a lot. I think I'm I'm wondering if that's kind of what triggered. I just put out a tweet the other day, and and um and I was kind of like, you know, is it possible in an age where we just don't believe in anything or we don't trust anyone? Is it possible to to have like a genuine hierarchy? And and something that was so valuable to me actually in my education, I come out of a Christian background, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, like you're you're taught that hierarchy is good. So then I went through my full on like anarchist phase, <laughs> and I think and I think now I'm kind of like kind of trying to be like, okay, so. So then what is the value of like a functional hierarchy rather than some sort of like absolute essentialist, you know, but like, no, 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 like it's okay to have, you know, the masters that you set yourself underneath to be like, hey, teacher, teach me, you know, right. and, and I don't know, I think there's something actually beautiful that we can learn about it. So I actually, I think I really respected that. And like, even listening to the seminars, you are very gracious with letting like, like um jade and illyria in particular like in the in the ones that i've listened to and i can't remember who the guy is that's like really like talks a lot about like marx and like the second the volume of but like in these classes uh, he knows marx you're like yeah yeah and you're like we, we should have you teach a class on this one time but well, he, he a, did yeah he did oh, we, we great well he's he's doing capital this fall actually anyway jared's one okay. of our fellows now so he's he's on great. the faculty yeah so so this comes about though organically through the process of actually 
having that hierarchy established, but then also a graciousness of appreciating contributions that creates actually, I think, a really lovely kind of dynamic, like an iron sharpening and an iron dynamic that happens organically rather than it's structured or it's forced, which I don't know. I I really actually enjoyed what, what, what I've, what I've seen. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this has been difficult to manage as we, you know, grow, but, but it's, we've grown a lot over the last year, especially. So the earliest classes that we started doing, um, the race and finance is the earliest one in the archive. It's not the first one we did. There's an earlier yeah, one. That where's the turbulence the class? It's, you keep it's, referencing it's, it. It's, it's the loss. Yes, it's 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 not part of the archive. Uh, uh, for is it. it is it like Paul Virilio and shit or what is it? Um, I can send you the list after the. It's okay. it's um, it, it so basically. I mean that class is basically about um, uh, financial history, deep history of finance thinking about uh well sort of okay so like the the framing question is if okay so if we imagine finance as uh concerned in some way with risk hedging with managing volatility right um and like so we might think about like the deepest oldest financial asset right as like a granary full of grain right um you've got the granary full of grain uh you know Grain flows in, grain flows out. The existence of that hedges volatility in 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 agricultural harvests and that sort of thing, right? This is Book of Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it doesn't end well for those spoiler for anybody who hasn't read the story. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, so, but you know, these are these are technologies that in some ways seem to be fundamentally related to managing uh, external volatility, really mm-hmm. related to weather and the climate, and and but then. Financial systems uh, produce endogenous instability, right? So we ended with Minsky, actually, and the the financial instability hypothesis, right? So trying to think about what's the way that finance has to tries to hedge volatility that comes from the outside of society, and in some way reproduces that volatility inside society. Inside society. So that that was the sort of theme of of the readings cool. that we did. I can send you the list. It's I think it might be posted someplace, but we don't have the videos. Um, for reasons it was kind of a failed experiment in some ways but um cool did you did you uh, i know we haven't quite finished the thought on members so don't let's let's not forget it but did you i sent you the the special issue that finance and society just did on volatility where Uh dick bryan actually reviews your former supervisor's book justice is an option which i also have just read the introduction of but um the whole the whole issue is about volatility and its impact not just from kind of like a purely technical financial perspective but also its impact on culture society and the arts which um I feel like it's something that people are more interested in exploring, which I think 10 years ago, or let's say even 15 years ago, was something that was like, you know, only in the purview of cultural studies or something like that. And nobody took it seriously. But it seems like people are actually taking it seriously now who are interested in kind of the more formal economic uh, topics. Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean, so I much of the way that I talk about stuff like volatility is influenced by Robert Meister, uh, my advisor, yeah. the one who uh, uh, Dick is reviewing. I haven't looked at that essay, um, but I, I, I have talked to Dick. I, I know uh, Bob's work. So yeah, Dick's. Um, I'm, I'm at the university of Sydney. So Dick, okay, Dick is uh, emeritus here. So uh-huh. we've got, uh-huh. we've got the whole asset school here. Like Lisa Adkins, Martin Konings, Dick Bryan, right. Mike Rafferty's right. not at university of Sydney, but he's Dick's writing partner. So, and then we get all the finance and society people that come through like, 
Amin Saman and, um, you know, Michelle Chahara and stuff like that. They all are, are always coming through. Michelle yeah. Fair, Michelle Fair was a visiting scholar here for a bit. So like, that's kind of that whole world. That's how I found Meister actually was because of his, um, what is it? Primitives and derivatives that whole, like the social wealth of derivatives of volume yes. that Benjamin yeah. Lee and Martin and Meister and Arjun Napadurai and all of them contributed to. That was how right. I kind of got into this world. Yeah. I mean, I, so I would say, you know, I, much of the stuff you're talking about is kind of the very similar kind of waters that, that my work is, is swimming in the, the way that I think I differ from a lot of um, the names you've mentioned is my focus on the deep past essentially. So, yeah. um, you know, my, my work is really um, well, I've worked most closely on the English 14th century um, is is probably the the place that I've dialed in dialed in the closest. But I've I've been trying to um, yeah develop a history of of coinage um, from its from the earliest coins uh, of the Aegean, probably in the seventh century BC. It's as good a guess as any. Um, you know, basically up through uh, the development of the of the modern deficit state, which um, mm really kind of occurred during in England uh during the century of the Stuarts and the English Civil War. So so I really begin with the accession of James Stuart as the King of England. And I look backwards um at English history and I try to ask what's at stake in the fact that we don't have coins anymore um rather mm. than taking that situation for granted and i and so i think this is this is my contribution um to to this field is to um kind of develop a theory of of a, a constitutional theory of monetary politics that um corrects some serious misunderstandings in books like christine de Sans, which is a book that is often cited um making money which is kind of the authoritative charterless history of coins mm. um nearly everything that Dasan says in that book about coins is, is factually in incorrect um <laughs> and if you if you if you kind of try to put the coins back into the picture um things really change in interesting and exciting ways and one of those ways is that it's it's the volatility that matters more than the absolute value right which is a difficult paradigm shift to wrap your head around and and what i mean by that is that you know, coins are things that are manufactured by pre-industrial handcraft, essentially. Um, they don't all weigh the exact same amount, right? They don't all have the same amount of silver in them. Um, yeah. Now, you would be impressed, right? When they want to make them really close to each other, they're pretty good at it, surprisingly mm. good at it. But they don't always do that, right? If we actually go look at the coins, they vary. Um, so there are, if you just, you know, uh, gather data on the weight and purity of, you know, just one type of coin, it, it will make a, a kind of, there's a characteristic histogram. Um, and part of what I'm interested in is, uh, applying certain kinds of theories of, um, similar to what's called the money view, where what's centered is focus on spreads rather than prices, right? So yeah. um, we're, we're focusing on a difference between bids and asks rather than a price, which doesn't really exist in the, in the market, right? Um, but you can try to apply some of these tools to studying coins. And, and I'm interested in, in the question of what kind of like political history we can reconstruct through uh, analysis like that. There's there's an interesting kind of related to this, and I wonder if this reveals 
some of your position. So in the beginning of your book, you have uh, three quotes that set it up. You have one from Innis. So credit theories of money, maybe, even though that's not what the quote is about. His quote is about history. But then you've got Meister and then you've got Thomas Hobbes. So is that are those three a good sort of uh, conceptual structure for helping us understand what the fuck your project is yeah. even though you're not i know you don't fully buy into the credit theories of money idea because it's a little bit too one note right but but is that kind of maybe how you would set up your concept so you can dive into them the english civil war with hobbes understanding yeah. it etc cetera, etc cetera. meister derivatives optionality something along those lines and then with Innis, something about debt yes so well i mean we can go ahead and get into it the my intellectual trajectory that led me to the position that i'm now holding led me through becoming converted to marxism and then becoming converted to chartalism and then Failing. So you were you were a big MMT guy for a bit, weren't you? Yeah. Um, Okay. I was. It seemed it seemed very important to spread the good news that (laughs) that money that money is not ontologically constrained, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, this is what I grew up learning, right? Mm -hmm. That that you know, I mean, this is how they talk about it, and and for me, you know, the my um, I suppose ecological politics are everything else about my politics flows from that you know i'm a i suppose a climate change alarmist i mean i think it's a very serious problem um and you know you so you grow up thinking about this stuff and and what you always hear is that we can't afford it and various things like that well you know okay Mm. this doesn't really make a lot of sense right it seems important that there's this whole discourse about fiscal politics that assumes that there's some kind of like metaphysical conservation principle constraining the monetary system that simply doesn't exist um mm-hmm. you know and and that and that you know what the what the united states government does when it when it pays back its debt is just to swap one form of its liability for another form of its liability or at least that's what it looks like right so that mm-hmm. seems important but of course you know i had spent before becoming converted to the importance of that observation you know, I'd spent a lot of time. I'd spent my early twenties uh, uh, reading Marxist theory very, somewhat piously, you know, and 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 that all emphasized. We all do. Yes, yeah, they all do. Yes, that's, so <laughs> uh, you know, and 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 that all emphasizes what? Well, it emphasizes that that social systems are structured by antagonisms, which which is a basic kind of. Uh, assumptional framework that I still in some way adhere to, although I wouldn't, I, I try, I don't think about contradictions like the Hegelians do anymore. Um, although, but I still basically see society as a, as a conflictual structure, right? I mean, I mean, there's, there are, there are antagonisms in society and, and what MMT kind of promises to do is, is to do politics without antagonism. And, and, mm. and probably, probably the, the best example of this is the Stephanie Kelton blog post um, titled my rich friend doesn't want to pay taxes. Um, mm. But good news. We don't need taxes to fund the government. Okay. You know, <laughs> so, but, but you read that and you say, okay, but on the other hand, like, uh, am I allowed? I'm not, am I allowed to curse on the podcast? Screw, 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 you know, fuck, fuck your rich friend, right? Dang, I mean, dang your rich friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, 
fuck them. So, yeah. you know, just so, just so because- it's kind of like providing cover for your rich friends. It's like, hey, well, don't worry. We're not coming after your taxes because if you want, you can maintain your wealth. But don't worry, because the government can just kind of like, you know, uh, tick up the tick up the ledgers a little bit more if right. they want to. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So there's so there's <laughs> yeah. something so there's something obviously wrong about this, right? And mm. and the and in that whole there's so obviously something that's missing from that analysis. You know, the the problem is whether the Marxists already know what's missing. And and the issue is that the more you learn about money and the more you look at what Marx has to say about money in capital, the more wrong it all is. Um, well, that's interesting. And- Let me ask you this. What do you think about the difference between the marks of the Gundrisa versus the marks of capital? Because in, in, in capital, he starts with the commodity, but in the Gundrisa, he does start with money. And this is where I find someone like Negri interesting, you know, who who looks at Marx, who's in, in a very sort of heretical way. And a lot of people like have have, you know, really criticized him because they're like, ah, he's bastardizing Marx and turning him into Foucault. And it's just about power relations. But that's one uh, of the things that I think you can kind of extract, at least from Negri's reading of Marx, which is like, no, the money form is actually first and that there's something important about understanding it, even right. though he obviously still goes down the commodity money route and stuff like that or the. Yeah, you know, but which kind of, it doesn't. This yeah. is all this is all a distraction. This is all yeah. inside baseball for the Marxists. It doesn't that's matter right. whether it doesn't matter whether the money form transcendentally seeds the you know they the what is it they say the their their slogan for this is whether it's the labor theory of value or the value theory of labor it's the same thing right but there is no money form doesn't exist Mm. so doesn't it it, it's it doesn't help to say money comes first because you're still positing certain things about the necessary form of appearance of monetary relations Mm. but there is no necessary form of appearance of monetary relations this is okay. mon- monetary rela- monetary relations are institutional they are conditioned by institutional structures they they can work different ways in different periods i mean you know i mean does you know just we could just begin with an obvious point is the necessary form of appearance of money silver or gold well it changes back and forth this is one of the things that i'm interested in is there are oscillations there are long-term mm. oscillations in european monetary history which is mainly what i study although it's difficult to keep it contained geographically because it's a integrated world system from a very early period you know but there mm. but there are, are are long cycles um in in which silver periods are, are are overcome by gold periods and and vice versa and trying to it the marxist view about money is absolutely no help in trying to understand those phenomena mm. Mm. What what do what do Marxists say when you posit that? Because I'm thinking of somebody like Michael Roberts, who still like wants to argue. I don't know if you've read his blog, but he still wants to argue that that the economy is backed by gold in a very sort of strict right. sense. You know yeah, why? <laughs> I mean, just because it's transcendentally necessary. Well, what about what about when yeah. it was silver? So so yeah. so in most of the periods that I study, in England is on a silver standard. They have gold coins, but the gold coins are the bad money. I mean. I have to go on and to elaborate what it means to say that something is bad money, but 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 it didn't used to be gold. Gold? What are you talking about? Silver. Silver is money. So at some point, mm. it changed from being silver to being gold. Why? Why did that happen? Why? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think if you can't even begin to even try to take interest in such questions, right? The Marxists mm. can't really even be interested in such questions because we know that it's just the you know it's the crystallization of socially necessary abstract labor time, et cetera, blah blah blah. So so what? How did the Marxists respond to me? They just drone on with their jargon. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's interesting because I come out of I can't remember if we were recording when I said this, but I come out of a Christian background, right? So dogmatism was something that, that, well, I have a weird experience. So I wasn't, 
I was kind of raised in the church and kind of not raised in the church at the same time. My dad converted when I was like 10 or 11 because he got cancer, right? And so I started going to church with him on the weekends when I would visit him, but my parents were never married, so they were separated. And um, so I would see my mom during the week who was not religious in any formal sense, right? Like she believes in a higher power and she's got her own kind of hippy dippy spirituality, which is beautiful, but she's much more like pluralistic, right? So then my dad converts at like, you know, I'm like 10, 11 years old. So I start going to church, but obviously growing up in the United States, it's even though I'm from California, which is, you know, pretty relatively progressive compared to the rest of the country, you're still inundated with Christian imagery, thoughts, ethos, et cetera. Right. So it's hard to escape. So it wasn't really until I was about 10, 11, when I started being like formally introduced to the dogmatism of religious thinking per se. And then at like 16, I rebelled and I was like, fuck it. I don't want to go see my dad anymore. And I don't want his rules and stuff like that. He was just too strict. And then at like 22, I had like an issue with like a drug experience that freaked me out. And I thought I was going to die and go to hell. So I had like a radical conversion then into Christianity, right? So I actually Mm. then, my bachelor's degree is in like theology and philosophy. And then I did a master's degree with, um, in the UK in philosophical theology. And I worked with a guy named John Milbank, who's like a radical orthodoxy guy. And my advisor was Philip Goodchild, who writes on like theology of money and capitalism and religion and debt and stuff like that. He's, he's great shit. One of the first guys, actually, I think he's the first guy to write a book in English on Deleuze, not Deleuze and Guattari, but just on Deleuze in like 93, 95, something like that. And so uh, it was an interesting thing, but I think I have like this inbuilt like allergy to dogmatism. And, and when I, whenever I encounter a system where like the theory comes first so stringently that it does not allow for flexibility to actually contest itself, like not just, oh, we're going to incorporate things into our pre-existing schema, but rather like, no, we're actually going to take apart some of our foundational beliefs. If you're like just unwilling to do that as, as like a priori, I, I am automatically a little bit, uh, you know, like there's something off here. And while I still have some sort of like connection to the Marxist tradition, it's very like my my connection is very tenuous and I definitely am not in, in orthodox in any way. It's kind of like, I don't even know why I'm still holding on. Maybe it's because it's like that last vestige of like the community that embraced me for a bit. And I, I'm like too scared to be like, I'm no longer, you know, attached at all. But But it is that dogmatism that really does kind of turn me off. And I am constantly like, when I'm around Marxists, I'm like, guys, let's be less Marxist. And then when I'm around people who aren't Marxist, I'm like, no, but there's still some stuff in there that we should, you know what I mean? But it's the dogmatism that I'm constantly, like, I think that is like my biggest bugbear that I'm like, ah, I just, there's something fundamentally wrong with it. If you cannot allow for variation within your own foundational schema itself, I think. Well, you know, Marxism attracts people whose hearts are in the right place. Um, It is burdened with certain conceptual baggage. Um, without which it wouldn't be Marxism and which seriously prohibits the investigation of the world. Um, Mm. This is, this is actually, I mean, this is part of what we do at the member school um, uh, in, in way, you know, so, you know, so my research is about coins, but thinking about coins requires me to bring some tools to bear from other places, uh, mainly, you know, my training in philosophy and uh, classical Mm. literature. Um, You know, I have sort of a great books formation. Um, Although, you know, I mainly now would consider myself mostly an enemy of the Western canon, uh, uh, working from within it. Um, Mm. 
Hmm. You know, and, and, and one of, you know, one of the main issues, and this is something we're always talking about at member school is modern philosophy after Kant and the German idealism and its intellectual heirs of which Marxism is the most prominent, hmm. explicit heir of the German idealism. Although on my view, I mean, most of what people think they know is downstream from from that in some way. And we really see the German idealist project as an attempt to save Christianity, to, to save the basic coordinates mm. of Christianity from Christianity's legitimacy crisis, to secularize it, to make it no longer depend on revelation, but merely as a result of pure reason um, or, you know, the activity of reason and history, et cetera, this sort of thing, right? So, so we can continue being Christians without having to depend <laughs> upon mm. the inconvenient parts of Christianity, and and we see this as as really fundamentally in in cahoots with a white supremacist um, world building project, right? So, um, can you can you say more about this? Like, yeah. what is it about? the German idealist tradition that is trying to retain, like what is being retained? Edward Said has this great, this great uh, commentary on Kant in one of his lectures. I can't remember what it's called right now, but where he talks about like in Kant's elaborations of freedom and the transcendental yes. subject, he's doing that in contestation against the people who aren't human. And so yes. any sort of conception of the rational subject that is, that is created through the Kantian schema is done in direct um, isolation from or or uh, dehumanization of the other, which is obviously it's, the colonized people, right? It's, is that kind of the thing? Yeah, yeah. It's yes, but it's even worse than that. It's it's that it's that the point of Kant's philosophy is to de develop a criterion through which it can be judged whether people are real humans or not. So, hmm. and, and Kant just says this. I mean, I mean, he tells you this. Um, he. And he says it explicitly in some places and he says it in code in other places. But, you know, the, the problem is that there are many people who appear to be human, who have irreconcilable ideas about what ought to be done, um, you know, or or who have irreconcilable wills, not only about what ought to be done, but about what the basic framework of of, of ethical life is. And we need a way to distinguish them from one another. So, um, and he actually in Metaphysics and Morals refers to this at one point as the difference between a homo noumenon and a homo phenomenon. So mm. the appearance of homo and the reality of homo. Um, so, I mean, and so, I mean, what is he trying to retain well, he's trying, what is it about Christianity that he needs to retain is freedom and the will. Mm. So when, and, and this is important because the Christian, fundamental Christian ethical idea, right, is that it's our intentions that matter ethically, our mm. will, not what we do, right? Um, and this is important because the alternative is um, that our freedom doesn't matter. That the only thing that matters is whether we follow the law or not, um, which is, well, that's an Orthodox Muslim position as opposed to an Orthodox mm -hmm. Christian position. So I, I think that Kant and, and all the thinkers who follow him are anxious about a number of, 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 of problems that are arising out of their attempt to say, we Western, white Western Europeans have reason on our side and reason gives us the right to rule the world which is, of course, what Kant says in Towards Perpetual Peace. That's the point, right? I mean, he tells you all of this. Um, uh, it, and, and, of course, the, you know, the obvious problem 
is that there's other people who have different laws, who are mutually incompatible laws, right? And 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 of course, you know, famously, right? What is what is Kant's? You know, just for example, right? The the don't you you know you must not lie. That's the paradigm. Um, it's not a coincidence. That's that's also the paradigm in Plato's Republic. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that the paradigm of ethics for philosophers is always the lying promise. And what's that bad debt? Same thing. Lying mm -hmm. promise and bad debts are the same. Um, so it's already a monetary metaphor, right? But but of was, course, yeah. You know, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was just, just to finish the thought, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. in one of the things that Islamophobes often emphasize in conjuring up the fear of Muslim infiltration of Christendom, right, is the doctrine of taqiyya. I'm not, probably not saying that right, but it's it's basically the 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 doctrine that a Muslim, um, so. You know, is uh, not commanded. They they can say if they're in danger, they say, oh, "I'm not a Muslim. I I renounce Islam." Um, they they it's it's recommended for to lie about that in order to um, to to preserve your own safety and and those of your co-religionists. Um, but in Christianity, that's what Peter. That was his great fucking shame, right? When he yes. denies Christ, they're like, right. "Are you 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 were with him?" And he's like, "No, no, yes. no." And then that's his great shame right. that he has to overcome. Right. And the lesson is like. Don't ever do that, you know. Don't right. ever disavow, you know, your faith. Yes. So, mm. so, so the issue is that there might be serious a serious position, right? A serious mm -hmm. position with its own claim to legitimacy and its own internal coherence that says sometimes it's okay to lie. You know, I mean, it's not obvious that that is a um, that that's a wrong position, and you know, it's worth noting that to say right one must never make a lying promise damn the consequences is a is a, is a, is a creditor ideology that says debts debts must always be repaid no matter how detrimental uh the the enforcement of debts is to the overall health of society right which which of course i'm sure you're familiar with the work of michael hudson on on the ancient near east and stuff so so that brings us into that world right and this so th this is kind of um, some of my starting places for getting interested in in the research that i'm doing it's so interesting i have Bear with me on this. I'm going to try to make them connect. Um, there's an there's a quote that I have I I I shared it on Twitter fucking two three years ago, and I cannot find it in my own tweets. But it was a French scholar writing about Kant, and it essentially says something along the lines of Kant's entire project is him dealing with his own sort of like internal neuroses and trying to create balance out of imbalance. And related to that, um, Peter Osborne writes that Kant in the entire post-Kantian tradition can be seen as a way of um, controlling like upsurgent singularities. And, and, and you do that through the kind of transcendental aesthetic of, of time and space, right? As like a first port of call and then go on from there right. to the categories. And it, it, there's something interesting, I think, because also then the third thing is Kojin Karatani in his book, um, Architecture as Metaphor, writes about how all 20th century formalisms, well, all formalisms, he says, because he talks about uh, they derive from the platonic move, which is to stifle becoming in the name of what he calls like an architectonic philosophy of, of being or um, of like construction, homo faber, right? And... Um, and that it all derives from like this similar need to control excess or otherness or upsurgent singularities or maybe like 
Islamic contamination, right? Or or something like that. That 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 the construction of Western philosophy, Western thought, that there is something about this through line of needing to control the excess um, of becoming. And I find that really interesting. And then the second thing kind of related to that is I think you do too. And then you see in that money, something right. about how this relates to like, like Plato being like a, is he a, a views money as debt and Aristotle views money as, as like a, like a commodity, like he's a metalist, right. Or something like that. But you see there's a money metaphor in this as maybe even prior to the philosophical musings on a kingdom of yeah. ends or a good society or anything like that. It, tell me yeah. where, where do you think this, yeah, if this stimulates any thoughts and and then kind of how you, how you see that, that connection. Right. Right. So, um, so I, subscribe to what is a pretty strong claim um, made by Richard Seifert um, in his book, uh, Money in the Ancient Greek Mind, which um, I don't think everything he says in that book about the money is exactly right. But the but regardless of that, the claim of that book is that money is the central structuring metaphor of philosophy, period. Yes. Um, that, yeah. that the genre of thinking and writing that we call philosophy is essentially would not exist without um, uh, an, essentially an anxiety response to to a monetized economy. Um, Can I ask one one simple kind of question yeah. related to that? Money or like the economy, yeah. and how do you see yeah. them as? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so Seaford means coinage specifically, yeah. which is which is which is how we account for the supposed fact um that philosophy is a greek discourse right i mean i mean it is i think not terribly controversial to say that what we call philosophy is a genre of writing that we see in greeks and we don't see it on the cuneiform tablets and stuff right um mm. there's a there's a there's a great book that i highly recommend called philosophy before the greeks by mark De, mark van de Meerup, who's a uh an, an a and e scholar um, you know, and at, uh, this is not to denigrate the intellectual culture of of the ancient Near East. I mean, maybe philosophy is bad. Okay, I mean, I'm so hmm. so to say that the Greeks invented philosophy is not necessarily to credit them with making an advance. I mean, maybe maybe they created a confusion and that we were much better off. I, I I don't take it for granted that that philosophy is good. I mean, maybe it's wrong, hmm. <laughs> and that's and that's part hmm. of what I'm what I'm leading up to here, right? Which is that so I mean, Seaford's argument anyway, and. I don't think Seifert is reliable on the ancient Near East. He's classics. Ancient Greek and Roman studies is a chauvinistic discourse. And sometimes things are much more complicated before and outside the areas they know about. And they tend to look down on them and all these kinds of things. And I, there's a little bit of that that I detect in Richard Seifert's book. So so um, especially um, there are material predecessors of coinage in Levant, um, essentially sealed bags of silver and all that. Anyway, there's monetary instrument. Coins did not just drop out of a vacuum. But what we don't seem to really have um, prior to, well, the development of coinage as such in Asia Minor and then in uh, all around the Aegean um, in the, the 7th and 6th centuries is a state-issued uh, money. Uh, of course, 
you know, um, Mesopotamian temples and stuff, right? Uh, accounted in silver, but they didn't have, at least not to my knowledge, if somebody out there knows that they did in fact have such things, I'd be happy to hear it. And I'd love for you to send me the literature, but I'm not to my, it's not to my awareness, right? There wouldn't be like a bar of silver that said this bar was issued by this particular temple and it's worth more than it would be if it weren't in the coin. Okay. So, so basically, you know, coinage is an overvalued monetary instrument. And what I mean by that is that when silver is in a coin, same amount of silver as raw silver versus a coin Usually, not invariably, but the typical case, right, is that the coins are worth more, even though it's the same amount of silver, okay? So that mm. is something that is puzzling. It is, uh, an, it is, we could say, an ontological scandal. It creates, mm. it makes people mad because it's, it seems, well, it, it, it is in some way irrational in the sense that mm. these are things that should be an identity, but in fact are different. Um, and, and this bothers people, right? And of, and of course, the it, 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 we then enter into the scene, the political discourse about tyranny, the tyrant, um, who's in some ways paradigmatic act is to debase the coinage, right? Um, the tyrant calls in all the coins um, and he issues them back out again at twice as much value and forces everybody to take the coins that they had just paid him at, at twice their value. And he keeps the other half for himself, right? Um, the, the the tyrant is paradigmatically the the political figure who um, engages in state intervention into the nominal value of money um, to his own benefits and to the ruin of his subjects and this sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So 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 there is this problem about the difference between nominal and intrinsic value um, that Richard Seaford reads as really the origin of the philosophical problem about the difference between being and appearance. Right. Um, so think about Republic Book One. What's the problem? What's the problem with which mm. everything that follows emerges? Well, I mean, first we get the discourse of Cephalus, but then we start to develop a philosophical problem, which is if somebody loans you something, whether money or a sword, is what they owe to you that thing itself or its value? Okay. Mm. Is what is owed the thing itself or the value of the thing? And this becomes a puzzle in the case of the insane friend, right? So, so uh, you know, my friend loans me his sword and then asks for it back. In the meantime, he's gone insane and he wants to kill himself. Should I give him his sword back? Well, <laughs> do I do I owe him the sword? Hmm. In which case I should give it to him back and then he's going to kill himself. Or do I owe him the value of the sword, something good? In which case, if I gave him the sword back, I wouldn't be giving him something good, but something bad, right? So is what is owed the sword or something good of which the sword is an instance, right? That's the attempt to discover beneath the surface of nominal promises and their references, right? A deeper reality that is predecessor of what the economists would call value. Hmm. Do prior prior to Plato's exploration of this, does Seaford talk about the pre-Socratics? Yes. And how, yes. yeah. And what yes. does he say? Well, what his, is his, their yeah. His his you know, what what's the cartoon version of the pre-Socratics? Everything's water, everything's fire. Fire, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so he's saying that by trying to develop these substance monisms, they're they're attempting to um 
posit a a a a, a universal substance of which everything that appears is an instance and therefore which enables those things to be compared to one another is this is this in a way a type of i don't know is it if it's an orientalism because they're not but is this a type of chauvinism um that can only see like the pre the pre-philosophical mind as like absolutizing and only seeing in like a monistic singular sense and and can't allow for the possibility of of these more kind of possible variants and complexity in their relations mm-hmm. like dealing with like you're talking about the crazy friend kind of debt problem that you might run into do you think that that's maybe what seaford's kind of C- well seaford seaford's not the he's not like down on the pre-socratics he's not like okay haha they're not critical yet they're dogmatic okay. no that's not his argument he's 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 reading the Socratic philosophers is just a continuation of the so-called pre-Socratics. Like, I mean, if, I mean, if, I mean, if anything, the, the pre-Socratics are privileged because, because they're in Miletus and Ionia and stuff, which is where the real money markets are. I mean, I mean, we, because we think of Greece as the Athenian tradition, we think of Athens as the center, but really, I mean, Athens is the backwater and, and the, 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 the commercial center is, is on the Eastern, Eastern coast of the Aegean. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you said something about this, this tension between like the coin as stamped by, you know, the authority as being worth more than the actual weight, let's say of the silver. So I've got five ounces of silver over here and it's worth, you know, 10 and um, I've got five ounces of silver over here, but it's worth seven. Right. And well, the reason this one's the... yeah, seven watts, yeah, yeah. And and it's trying to figure out this incommensurability. And then one is yeah. stamped with the king's head on it. So that's why it's worth 10, um, 10 of I don't know, whatever the whatever the not the name of the currency is. And so it's got more value. And then you over here, you have the silver that's been passed down to you or whatever the fuck. I don't know, however you got it through some sort of like mercantile activity. Um, and you've got this this silver over here that's worth it's deemed to be worth seven. Because the monetary system says, well, actually, that is only worth seven because of, you know, the the scales or whatever or something like that. So there are these tensions that are emerging. Is that kind of what's happening? And then the question is, is like what legitimates the the kind of nominal status of the currency, but then also what legitimates the value of this one being worth more is just simply that it's got, I don't know, the king's head on it or whatever. Close. Okay. But still okay maybe maybe let's begin at the beginning and i'll try to there you're you're basically right but you're still framing your question in terms of an assumption that we might dispense with and make things more clear so i'll try to get to that at at the end but we probably should start at at the beginning which is you know i mean history of money is is or history of of monetary theory is just medalist versus charterless like everybody's like heard of this right i mean well Actually, you'd be surprised. Nobody's ever heard of chartalism. Everybody's heard of Bitcoin, but nobody's ever heard of MMT. I mean, the MMT guys really <laughs> need to do a better job with their public relations. <laughs> I mean, unless you're very online on Twitter, you probably haven't right. heard of it. Yeah, unless yeah, you're yeah. very online, you have it right. So, but you yeah. know, but the orthodox the orthodox story, which is Aristotle's story, um, I think Sean Sean is working on Aristotle. He wants to complexify the reading of Aristotle, so we'll see once he's finished with that. But um, the Aristotle story. It's the Adam Smith story. It's the story is you'll still be taught today in the textbooks of, of the economics class, right? I mean, is that, uh, uh, um, you know, people, uh, mon- essentially money is like this spontaneous good equilibrium in which people like want to exchange stuff 
and it's like a pain in the ass to just exchange ducks for weed or whatever so they you know just decide to use money and um well like gold and is gold okay it's not gold it's silver gold is a latecomer in monetary history silver Mm -hmm. but we'll ignore that you know silver is like convenient because it you know doesn't rust blah 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 blah, etc and and Mm -hmm. then well and then so people did this for like a long time and then they realized they didn't have to do that so they just used paper instead and and that's <laughs> why that's why even though we have this story about where money comes from that doesn't match any of what you actually do um it's still the same story and and so basically right so the you know so what's the theory here about the relationship between sign and substance in in money right well yeah. it's that the sign is a is a is an indication of the substance right? The, the sign guarantees the substance. And once the sign has guaranteed the substance, we can actually dispense with the substance and just have the guarantee, right? So, so mm. we can have the note that guarantees gold. And at some point you realize, hey, the gold is just sitting there in the bank vault. And actually, if somebody had like, nobody's checked to see if it's still there for like a month. And if somebody <laughs> had stolen it, then nothing would be the difference. And so, you know, so we'll just use the money, right? That's Doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's the medalist story, right? Which is, which is, which is essentially that, uh, you know, money emerges as a spontaneous consensus among free exchangers. Um, it was originally a commodity and then was sort of replaced by, um, you know, paper because that was just more efficient. And um, within this story, right, obviously they know that the state has something to do with money, but it's like, it's the bad guy, right? The state is bad because it intervenes into the money uh, of what would otherwise be a naturally stable monetary system. And it produces, def- it debases the coins and it produces inflation. And that's that's the his, that's the moral lesson that we learn from the fall of the Roman Empire, right? This is um, mm. a familiar kind of story. So, so that's one kind of story. The other story is, of course, the Charles story that begins by observing, hey, like usually like when societies are becoming monetized, uh, it's because there's a war happening, you know, like the state mm. is spending a bunch of money in order to mobilize resources. And and this is in fact the case. If you go through history and you say, what are all the most important changes in the way the monetary system works? There's always a war going on. I mean, it's whether it's the English Civil War, whether it's the war with Napoleon, whether it's Alexander's conquests of Persia. I mean, there's always a war happening. That's um, mm. whether it's the Persian War, whether it's the Punic War. I mean, whatever, what have you, right? So so there's, mo- I would say most I was people- just, I was just watching, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Escape to the Country, but it's like this British show where it's uh, a bunch of people that want to move out of the city and then go like live in, in the Peak District or something like that. And they were in this area that had a lot of the monasteries. And when King Henry said like, fuck you to the Pope, one of the things he did was, you know, he dissolved all of the monasteries. And part of the reason that he did that, I guess, which I hadn't heard before, but then after listening to your kind of seminars, I'm like, oh, fuck, I see yes. this now. He dissolves all the monasteries so that he can fund his fucking wars, right? So well, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Many, so many, like, many such, yeah. many such cases in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, that's just another instance. It wasn't just yes. like, oh, I just want to marry this person. It was more also that there was this like uh, empirical or not empirical, imperial yes. sort of um, yes. motivation for it as well. Yes. So, you know, so so the the medalist story, the orthodox story is one that is pretty much defeated in in among anybody who studies this stuff seriously. Um, mm. That's not to say that it, it's still current in the economics department. Um, that, but but yeah, I was going to ask among people who study the history of money seriously, not in the economics department is no longer tenable okay. at all. 
Because because I was I was thinking as you were telling this story, the medalist story, you can also see why there would be critiques of um uh, of the divorcing of the sign from the substance. Because then if it's just all about the sign, then what you get is sort of like um yes. uh uh, this this potential for like fictitious money, which then the Marxist yes. story kind of comes out of, which is you yes. know uh, with finance as being like fictitious, and then and then you get a lot of these like um, like m- maybe I don't know if they would be Polanyian inspired critiques of of the financial sector as yes. being like it's not just the sign divorced from the substance, but it's the sign divorced from the sign divorced from the sign divorced from the sign, which is even further divorced from the substance. And so you get like these further degrees of abstraction away that makes it even more irrational. And so then I'm thinking also of these like um, Augustine, these kind of like wig critiques of finance from like, you know, like the 18th and 19th century, like Jonathan Swift and stuff like that, that are all very kind of critical of finance as being this irrational superstitious thing because it's not actually connected to substance. So that seems right. to maybe come out of the medalist story, if I'm understanding this. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah. Okay. So yeah, there, I, I'm I'm hesitating because I could say a lot about that, but I think it might distract from um the, the parenthesis that I'm in the middle of at the moment. So, okay. the, you know, so, so, so yeah, so, so there is this idea, right? So one, one has the medalist story and one might think that there's a problem because the sign has been, has lost its connection to substance. And like, we need mm. to fix that in some way, right? That's the problem. And whether, you know, whether mm. this could express itself in a Marxist idiom, it could be a gold bug idiom. It could be an anti-Semitic yeah. idiom. It could be all three mm. of those things at once, right? Yeah. I mean, it, many different kinds of ways. So there's, um, there's, there's something wrong about that. And there's also something wrong about the view that I, some of the people you mentioned earlier, I know, hold this view that there is no nothing at all to say about the difference between the financial economy and the real economy. Mm. That view I think is also mistaken importantly. So without, without elaborating my view, I'll just put my cards on the table and say that I think the difference between the real and financial economy is real, but non-decidable in that Mm. there's no objective way to decide what is and isn't. Um, But it isn't nothing, right? It's there someplace, but we can't decide where it is. That's, that's sort of the general view that I take about this. So I, um, so so I disagree with those who say that there's no problem about like things like asset inflation or or or, right. or issues like that right that seems to me to be a very real kind of dynamic and if one loses entirely the distinction between real and financial economies it's difficult to talk about that um mm. but one would be confused if you thought that the difference was objective rather than being in some some way like arbitrary yeah um, one of one of the things maybe that some of these figures um and maybe because they're trying to overcorrect by emphasizing that actually the financial economy is quote unquote real is right. maybe they do the opposite move rather than saying that the the real economy is actually what is the foundation they kind of say no actually the financial economy is first right yeah. like the derivative is the mediating signifier that is prior i think benjamin right, lee kind right. of makes that argument right yeah. or um like Ivan Asher has a book called um, uh, uh, what's it called Portfolio Society on the means of prediction rather than means of production, and he's kind of looking at finance as being like this 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 prior existent. Uh, Karatani makes this 
this move um, with looking at capital that there's like a mana like quality, he says, that is like debt that is there in the commodity form as like a first move. And I think maybe they're kind of trying to overcorrect, but maybe your your yeah. argument is that they're kind of there's, conflating in the other direction. There is something important about that. And, uh, you know, and um, uh, I've talked, you know, I've talked to Ben and others about this a lot. I mean, uh, mm. you know, the, there's something important about that, but at the end of the day, you have to remember that the, the, the bankers in New York city can't feed themselves and they're completely dependent for their existence in a real way in which it's not as clear why anybody else needs them. And I think it's important both, both analytically and politically to hold on to some kind of intuition that maybe we don't really need those bankers in New York City. So, um, mm. so I don't think they're the ontological foundation of the economy. No, I, I, <laughs> I, th I think I think yeah. there's something wrong about a view that sees finance as, um, you know, sterility is the merit model and and Aristotle. I mean, um, it would be pretty hard to run and that. It, it would be hard to run an economy without clearing houses, you know. I mean, uh, I, there's a reason mm. that they exist. They're very old. The ancient Egyptians invented clearing houses, you know, in 3000 BC or whatever. They invented red ink, by the way, which that's a factoid. But um, <laughs> the invention of red ink, incredibly, the accounting use of red ink, incredibly important in the history of money. Um, mm. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, so there's, there's, this is, I think, an open question, and this is very much yeah. the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. But I'm, but I'm not totally sold on the pure idealist form of the theory let's put it that way but okay. let me let me get let me get back yeah. a little bit to the, to yeah, the yeah. cardinalist stuff right yeah which is that which is that it, you know by anybody who seriously studies money and i exclude the economics department from that category it's undeniable that monetization processes are state formation processes that these are one and the same kind of process that monetary systems and states however you exactly want to define what a state is they go together. Um, that is in general true, but it's especially true of coinage economies, which um, uh, so, you know, so one, one of the ways in which I depart from the, from the newly forming orthodox view um, is that I think that coinage matters. Um, this is one of the reasons that I have Mitchell Innes as one of my quotes and, and the, and mm. the reason that I chose from him, not a quote expressing his view, which is that coinage doesn't matter. Okay. He argues this explicitly that coin, that invention of coinage is a non-event in monetary history, essentially for innocent and, and the other um, credit theorists. Um, but he's, you know, but that in that quote at the beginning of my dissertation, he says, you know, if, you know, we have to put our theories to the test of history and, and if history disproves them, then, you know, we have to abandon them. And it's it's my claim that the test of history disproves the theory of Mitchell Innes and the credit theorists, which is which is that coinage is not really important, right? So it's especially when we're talking about coinage economies, which is what money is, okay, from the sixth century to, I don't know, call it Napoleon, okay? Um, and And money is coins, and credit is something different. Now, you could say this, there are certain places you could go and you could simply posit this difference between money and credit and you'd be laughed out of the room. Um, because mm. especially not the economists, but say the central bankers, this is what the central bankers think. All money is credit. Okay. This is what David Graeber argues in uh, the that's, Yeah. Market. And I feel like, I feel like that's gained a lot of traction yes. in recent years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. 
And we'll be, so we'll be doing Graber at the, we're going to do pretty much all of Graber at the member school this summer. So we're going to be, I will say this, settling I actually think them. Graber's best book is his towards an anthropological theory of value. And I, I think read that one, but it's on the syllabus. That's the thing. A lot of people haven't read it, but the right. reason I think it's so interesting is he talks about like Salins and all like the kind of like anthropological explorations of the cooler ring and stuff like that. And when, when people talk about debt, I feel like what he's doing in debt is he's like, He's it, not that he's not being as rigorous, but I feel like when he was doing anthropological theories of value, he was yeah. much more he was less trying to synthesize into like a singular narrative and more about like, hey, I'm going to explore all of it. And so what it does is it kind of creates this really lovely, I don't know, pastiche of, of things yeah. that you can then draw from, which I think is really which is really interesting. Yeah. So. Well, I won't, yeah. I'm going to read the book in about three months, so you can ask cool. me about it after, and then I'll tell you. Yeah, well, well, maybe we'll have a follow-up chat because yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to revisit it. So, um, you know, but it, now, what's funny about this, right, is that many of the people who believe that all money is credit, always and everywhere, also believe that that money is a creature of the law, by which by which they mean, right, that that. Money is money because it's defined as being such by the law, which is, mm. of course, an, an idea really, uh, really attributable to Nietzsche um, is the ultimate origin of this idea in the genealogy. As like debt and guilt sort of thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. The shoulds, the um, shoulds connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but it's a fact that, you know, say in the 14th century, uh, it was the law that coins are money and debt is not money. And in fact, hmm. much of what we call usury legislation is really a financial regulation regime whose purpose was to make the difference between money and credit to 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 prevent those categories of asset from uh, being confused with one another. OK, this hmm. is this is really the point of usury legislation. Is, is this the distinction between Namas and Lagos? Like that, that, that the law that is enactable is like yes. a material, formal, exactable technology, mm -hmm. but that there's something potentially beyond. Right, right. That, that, so, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to, let me answer that in just, just a moment. Okay. You're, you're, you're right, but you're ahead I'm ahead, of my, I'm ahead, ahead, yeah, ahead, I'm ahead of, of my it, yeah. presentation. You're ahead of my presentation. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. The, it, so it, it's, it's that. Right. So so the chartalists essentially want to tell a, a history of money in which what's always mattered is the state, is the law, is credit. And in order to do that, they really want to make the metal vanish from the coin. Mm -hmm. And 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 this is actually this is the easiest place to attack their literature. Go find anytime they say something about silver is wrong. It's totally wrong. They're just in there and they're mm -hmm. just pulling it out of their ass. Right. I mean, why is there silver in the money? Well, because it's an anti counterfeiting device. That's kind of like the best argument they've come up with. It, that's insane, because often um, it's the most pure coins in the monetary environment that are targeted for counterfeiting um for a number of interesting reasons okay so the, the idea that silver is an anti-counterfeiting device that ensures that coins are minted by i mean that's just absurd i mean that's not even serious but, but so you'll, that's, you'll mint, hear... that's so that's why the mint is important because like well, only... they, don't, they don't know why the mint is important they don't have a theory of the mint they're confused about uh, it. this okay, is this okay. is part of what my work rectifies so oh, okay so so the issue is right that yes the state is incredibly important in monetary history obviously so and yet it continues to issue money that is has gold and silver in it. Why? What is it doing? Well, 
It's hedging the money that it issues against the risk of its own non-performance, right? If, if you have a coin that is issued by the king, yeah, I mean, it's legal money. It might bear a premium as legal money, although it might not. Okay, it might actually be undervalued as the English penny was for much of the English history. Um, but it's got silver in it. And silver is something that is valuable in money markets that stretch all the way to Asia. You know, and, and one important consequence of this is that say you are the Duke of Lancaster and you have a lot of coins, you can use those coins to finance a rebellion against the king, right? So your money that you have is hedged against the risk of the king's non-performance and you can use it to pay soldiers to fight against the king and the king can't do anything about it. Now, that is a totally different situation if all of the silver is in the central bank and the Tower of London, you see. Mm. So there is a fundamental difference between a coinage system and a even a fiduciary paper money system, which is what? What's the difference? The difference is the choke point, the strategic choke point at which inside money can be exchanged for foreign exchange. What's the foreign exchange point? What's the point at which you can take domestic money and turn it into foreign exchange? Well, when you have a coin, that point is the coin itself. The coin can be directly turned into foreign exchange by melting it down. Uh, right? Because so they don't give a shit about the stamp on it, essentially. Well, if you don't, yeah, I mean, I mean, so, I mean, you know, say I have English money. So uh, because the English penny is undervalued for, you can take my word for that for the moment. There's a reason for it, right? But the 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 penny is actually worth more as silver than it's worth as a penny. The it's it's it, so people want to export them. They want to ship them out of the country and sell them to the mint in France or in Flanders. And the mint at those places will buy the coins as silver, melt them down, and turn them into French coins or Flemish coins. And and you can make an arbitrage profit by doing this. That's why they mm. try to make it illegal to export the coins. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're basically selling them silver while being like, well, this is meaningless to us, but it's valuable to you. So then we can get more from you for this meaningless yeah. fucking piece of metal so, over here. Uh. So the so the question is, why? Mm. If money is a creature of the state, the silver content doesn't really matter. It's just an anti-counterfeiting device. The, the state could have made money out of leather if it wanted to, you know. Okay, so why are they <laughs> issuing... Why are they issuing coins at such a high silver content that they're like smuggled out of the country such that everybody's bitching at you in parliament all the time about how there's not enough money? Hmm. Right? Why why not why not just debase the coins? Okay? Why not? Well, they don't. And in fact, they so much don't do this that Charles I um probably could have done something about fixing his financial situation. Uh, by debasing the coin, but he didn't. And so he got his head chopped off. So not only do they not do it, they don't want to do it so much that the king gets his head chopped off over it. Hmm. How, why is that, right? That's 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 a, a, a gaping hole in the Charles' story about monetary history. It's one that can't really be filled by the medalist story, but it means that we need a non-medalist theory of metallic coinage. And it's part of the suggestion of my work that basically the the way to solve this is to stop trying to insist, like both of the par different parties do, that it's only the nominal value that matters or it's only the intrinsic value that matters. And instead begin with the assumption, which is going to be quickly borne out by looking at the evidence, 
right? That it's the spread between those two things that matters. That what that what matters is the spread between nominal and intrinsic value. Now, when I talk about a spread between nominal and intrinsic value, I've said something kind of strange because I'm talking about a spread between quantities with different units, right? Intrinsic value mm -hmm. is a magnitude denominated in metal. It's 10 grams of silver or whatever. Nominal value is is a totally different unit. It's 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 one pound sterling. Well, mm. how do you compare those things? Okay, and well, there is a institution that compares those things. Right, there is an institution in the medieval monetary environment whose job, whose whole job, is to compare pound sterling to silver by weight, and it's the mint. That's what the mint does. And when the mint uh. quotes its policy. It offers it. So the mint has a, a bullion window. The mint is buying bullion and it quotes a price for bullion. What it is doing is quoting part of a spread that defines the difference between the nominal and intrinsic value of the money. And as my work tries to show, when it does this, it is managing money markets in exactly the same way that you would learn about if you took Perry Merrill's course on money and banking. And he tells you about how the central bank is managing spreads in the money market. That's what the mint is doing. The mint is quoting a spread and the money market is moving inside the spread. And what we call monetary crises are what happens when the market moves outside of the spread. It's no longer moving inside. You, you get sign inversions in the spread, right? The, the, the market is inside the spread and then it moves outside the spread. And all of a sudden, what happens? All of a sudden, all the coins drop out of circulation. Okay. So, yes. How does this... So the mint manages the money market. Crises are when that spread gets out of balance. What determines... Uh, a, a non-crisis state. Yeah. yeah. Why, well, well, what? So, so basically, the well, so the the non-crisis state is when uh, it it doesn't pay to melt down the best coins. Why? Okay. So let's think about what happens when you melt a coin. Is this right? is this the Gresham's Gresham's law stuff that you're getting into it's, now? It is. Yes. It is. It is the bad money. The non money. the non-operation of Gresham's law. So. Okay. So so Gresham's law says that bad money drives out good money. Um what this sort of says is that there can only be one money in a monetary environment because if there were more than one money, um the bad one would drive out the good one. That people would right because you know think you know if you, say you have, you know, say you owe a pound sterling and you have two different bags of coins, each of which are worth a pound sterling. And uh, well, one of them has more silver in it than the other. Well, you'd rather pay your debt with the bad one and, and save yeah. the good one. Right. So, yeah, so, right. Uh, you know, so, so, so that's the idea of Gresham's law. Now, when we look and we actually, at least, you know, make, make your histograms of the coins, what do we observe? We observe that Gresham's law doesn't operate that, mm -hmm. that there are different coins circulating um, with one another that don't have the same metal content, sometimes very different. Okay? Mm. It depends on the period, sometimes not very different, sometimes very different, right? So now, why is that? Well, the answer is that sometimes it's not worth it to melt down the good coins, to hoard the good coins. And when is it not worth it? Well, 
in order to answer that question, we might begin by thinking about, right? So, I, so I've been suggesting that a coin has both nominal and intrinsic value and that both of these things matter. We can describe these as options, as, as what would now be called exotic options. That's only because they're not vanilla options, okay? I mean, so they're not really exotic. It's, it's, it's just they, they aren't vanilla options, right? So, so what exactly are the options? Well, if you have a coin, you have an option to put the silver, to put the coin to your creditor in a court at its nominal value, right? So I have 240 pence. I if if my somebody sues me says Colin you owe me a pound I can say okay I'm gonna pay you by putting these coins to you and and the sheriff is gonna say yeah you paid him so even if the coins are bad as long as they're recognized by the court um, then I've paid you right so so mm-hmm. having a coin enables the holder to put the coin to a creditor in a court of law at its nominal value the holder of the coin also has the option to call the silver in the coin mm. by giving up the nominal value, okay? So I can mm-hmm. destroy the nominal value of the coin, which means, so So part of what makes these options weird is that um, is that the other option is part of the premium of the other option, right? So so I, I, I have both options, but I can only exercise one of them. So in, in order to exercise one option, I have to essentially buy back the 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 other option or whatever right so um so so they have a mutually defined cost um but i but i can melt the coin in which case it's no longer a legal english coin but i ha- now have the silver so i can put the coin or call the silver so so a coin is a call and a put put to, you know put together um and the question is whether calling the silver is in the money if the price is having to buy back the put. Hmm. So, so in other words, if I melt down the coin, I'm going to lose the nominal value of it being English money. Well, that not that it could be worth a lot more as English money than as silver. And so, even if one coin has more silver than another one, it's not worth it to to melt down either of them. And so, they'll both continue to circulate despite Gresham's law. So, Gresham's law is not well. It's it's a limit case. It's what happens when the call option in the coin comes into the money because because the money market moves beyond the policy spread. Mm. And and that's what mints manage when they when they change the minting policy, when they change the metal content in the coin. They are managing the the spread within which Gresham's law fails to function thus stabilizing the currency of a heterogeneous circulating money. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So essentially then the mint kind of operates as an intermediary in a derivative function between calls and puts, right? That are perpetually present in the coin. Yeah, they so well. Some of them are time expiring, and some aren't. So they're so. For example, some systems they periodically demonetize the coin, and we can think that that is the expiration of the of the options. Um, yeah. More more typically, they're perpetual options, so they're they have an okay. infinite expiry date, which makes them weird because what's the value of an infinite time? Right, that's a difficult mm. question. I mean, one although of course perhaps if the regime changes, if the king is overthrown, then the 
put option is going to expire, right? So so the the put option to make it legal money, to, to put it as legal money might depend upon the continuity of the regime, which wow. means that every which means that everybody who is holding these things is now long the continuity of the regime. Right. Which means that there's there's some there's some sense of value then that's that derives from the stability of the regime per se. So like yes. if the empire is viewed as being like unshakable, then there's yes. a value of of solidity and stability that gets carried over into this. Yes. So so one way that we might read the numismatic record as a data source for doing political history is that in very stable regimes, the money might be worse hmm. because because everybody believes that the regime will continue. And so they don't care <laughs> that much about it, right? Whereas if the regime is not very legitimate, if everybody worries about the continuity of the regime, then the money might be much better because the price at which people are willing to hold that asset is different do you see so you know i mean after william of normandy conquers uh, uh england he 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 uh stabilized he extremely stabilizes the monetary system really uh, uh, and and partly you know he, he needs to another thing here is like if you if you're paying mercenaries like one serious question is um what is the relationship between the state and um those who do violence on its behalf what is their loyalty to the state if my soldiers you know mercenaries don't work on credit they don't work for paper money right they they want gold and that well that's the story of philip ii and the dutch revolt and, and all that kind of stuff um hmm. you know they, they would mutiny if they didn't get paid and and, and they don't right, so i mean right. the, the the mutiny is really just a form of labor of, of it's, it's it's a strike right the labor hmm. is striking uh, and and they, they don't take paper money whereas there's there might be other people hmm. with whom the king is able to deal on credit more easily right so so it matters you know what What's the kind of ideological constitutional structure of the apparatus of state violence, and and does does it can it run on credit or not? Right, that's an important question for um, mm. and 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 well, maybe we can learn something about that from studying the coins. Can I ask you a really unfair question then? Because now yeah. we got to jump forward a few hundred years. Yeah. How does this have bearing on the United States as kind of global imperial currency? Like, how does this have bearing? Now, I know you said that you yeah. were kind of looking at your your current landscape and then working backwards. If we can, if it's not too unfair to kind of jump forward a couple hundred years now, how can we take these principles that you're talking about now and then think about them with like the current monetary regime or yeah. regimes, plural? Yeah. That's, that's not an unfair question. I mean, okay. Uh, I do prefer to talk about the past, but the, you know, <laughs> but the, but that's you know I mean this is why obviously I care about this stuff right I mean yeah. I mean again to go to go back to it it's you know okay we should fight climate change well why can't we well because there's not enough money we can't afford it well that doesn't really seem quite right right so um so there's got to be something fishy here and and you look into it and well it turns out that you know money is just a liability of the state or and then there's people who say that it's always been a liability of the state but that doesn't seem quite right it seems like it didn't used to be a liability of the state and then it became a liability of the state like sometime in the english 17th century and 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 you know the united states system is sort of the successor system to the to the to the london system right and and succeeded it you know, during in the middle of World War II and then the aftermath of World War II, war and, again, yeah. right? Yeah. So, okay. So, but so, but here's this question, right? I mean, so you know, uh, like, 
the most common response to MMT is like, okay, well, that only applies to the United States, right? Like, right. Uh, like, like, what about other countries? Well, I mean, that's um, a fair uh, point. And well, you do theory. get people here in Australia that are like, oh, yeah. because they have a sovereign currency, and so yeah, you'll yeah, no- yeah, yeah. you'll you'll no- you'll notice it's all English speaking colonies that have this mystical property <laughs> of monetary sovereignty. Yeah. The Chinese yuan is not. It's 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 the Anglosphere plus Japan because they're like honorary English people, I guess. You know, the, yeah. so. So, uh, okay. So, I mean, that's legitimate, right? I mean, there's a there's an issue here. the The charterists don't really have a um, good story about that. Um, but there's like even a more serious question, which is, okay, so if the United States like has this power, like why doesn't it exercise it, right? Like why 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 if the United States is at the top of this hierarchy and thus is completely unconstrained. Why do we have like the craziest this monetary fiscal politics, right? Like why do why do we like not only not do that, but impose austerity on our economy in this like really self-destructive way, right? It's like not only are we not doing that, but we're running as hard as we can in the opposite direction. And we're whipping ourselves up into hysteria about how we're gonna run out of money so that we can, you know, contract the economy and appreciate assets, you know, because because if if the economy is contracting, then the people who already own all the stuff are gonna get richer relative to everybody else. So one thing we haven't talked about that we worry about a lot about at the member school is the difference between um, positional and absolute uh, value, right? So, so to what extent is value something that's like a substance, and to what extent is it just positional in 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 the sense that I have it because you don't have it, and if you got mm-hmm. it, that would actually eliminate the value that I have, right? So, so there's a right. I mean, if if everybody had a place to live, what would be the value of having rental housing? Well, it would be pretty low because there wouldn't be a market, right? So, so there's something about like real estate, for example, is a positional value. I mean, it's if I have it, it's valuable only insofar as somebody else doesn't have it, right? So, there, mm-hmm. so there's a kind of deep issue there, but. So anyway, so, you know, so, so, but why does the United States like not behave like this, right? Like, um, you know, and it's even more puzzling when you realize that like MMT like has this weird genealogy from like Ronald Reagan, like, like Ronald Reagan, like already knew about MMT, right? So, so like, yeah, so, so, okay, so why, right? So I'm trying to understand this and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, yeah, and, Mil- Milton's talking about helicopter drops in what, like the late seventies or something like that. Right. So yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, why not? Right. You know, so, so, um. So, so this is all kind of puzzling, and 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 I the more I thought about that, um, the more it kind of triggered all this stuff I learned from classic literature, and and in particular tragic drama, which is um, I spend a lot of time talking about in my dissertation, because the figure of the protagonist of tragic drama, right, is is this weird coincidence of absolute power and absolute impotence, right? That's that's what tragedy teaches us is that power is really the road to impotence. And and what's tragic about tragedy is is the exercise of power by the tyrant undermining his own conditions of possibility, right? I mean, uh, Macbeth uh, attempts to cling on to power, and it's it's precisely that 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 undermines his power, right? Um, 
you know, Oedipus promises to find the murderer, and of course it's him, right? So, so the harder he, the harder he promises to find the murderer, right? The more shaky his regime becomes, and 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 this sort of thing, right? So, so, so I'm so I'm interested in tragedy as a kind of narrative structure, right? That disciplines sovereigns that that mm. teaches sovereigns that it might look like you could do this thing right now and if you did this thing right now it would probably work and you would defeat your enemies and you would seem really rich and you would seem really happy and powerful but tragedy is going to show you that this is impermanent right mm. that 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 everything you're doing now that is you know, seems to be bearing all this fruit for you. You know, even if it's not you, your your children will be punished by it, right? So, so, so we introduce the dynastic time horizon as the time in which hubris is punished by what? Well, by the by the laws of the nomos. Okay, the nom the nomos constrains the the logos of the tyrants right the the there, there's these un, this is antigone right the unwritten laws versus the proclamations of creon you know who's gonna win and and well part of what i'm trying to argue is that that discourse has always been about exactly the same kind of monetary politics that we're arguing about today right Tr when the classic tragedies are written in athens it's because athens is on the rise as this major coining power they have this they are developing a, a much more powerful fiscal system than they had a generation before the state is taxing and spending it has this power to you know change money and all of these kinds of things and 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 in order to deal with the anxiety that the state fiscal apparatus creates in elites right um there's a need for a kind of didactic discourse about teaching the state to use its power within the proper limits. And mm. I see this economics, what we call economics is just the it's just that dressed up with some fake science. Right? Mm. So I mean that's what economics teaches us is that there's no such thing as a free lunch. It might seem like yeah. there's a free lunch, but one day, you know, you'll get that lunch taken back away from you and everything's going to net to zero in the long run. So, so because there's this cosmic conservation principle that says that everything has to net to zero in the long run, you can't get what you want, right? Um, even if it seems mm. like you can. And, and of course, who does this narrative serve on my view? Well, it's, it serves the people who are afraid of the state because the state could seize their property and redistribute it to a lower class of people whose favor the state desires to court for reasons of internal and external security, i.e. the army, right? Why should we let all of you rich, useless people own everything? Why not seize your stuff and pay soldiers with it and take over the world, right? Why not? Well, from the point of view of the elite, that defeats the point of having the state, because the point of creating the state in the first place was to secure the, their wealth. The, the position, well, yeah. But now the very thing they've created to secure their wealth is going to threaten their wealth because it, it, it can say, well, national security, we got to seize your assets. You know, National security, we got to print money. National security, we got to borrow uh, all this. We got to create a bunch of debt, right? So, so there's a question of how do we create narratives that constrain that and that... Um, 
prevents the state from engaging in uh, progressively redistributive activities at the point of a sword that it is metaphysically perfectly capable of engaging in. Mm. So is this, so when you, when you hear like stories, like I think, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but she talks about like, you know, and there's a lot of discussion about the withering away of state power in the form of like <laughs> the managerial state and stuff like that. Like, is this, is this, do you see this as a phenomenon of, um, let's say the elite who have the interest in preserving their wealth, um, piecemeal dismantling sovereignty, um, to serve the benefit of like capital power or wealth power or whatever you want to call it. Whereas maybe then what you would want to argue is, well, actually what we're seeing in that is actually a revelation that they're trying to ward off a yes. power that they realize is actually inherent in the very system that positions yes. them in their position of privilege in the first place. Yes. And then there yes. is a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So just all that Deleuze stuff, anticipating warding off all that. Yeah. That's is exactly it. Okay. The, 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 the elites anticipate the tyrant and have to ward him off, but they, they also need to construct his conditions of possibility because if they don't, then the Persians and you know, then they'll be conquered by the great King of Persia and they'll be the slaves of the great King of Persia. So, so you, so you need, you need the triremes, right? And once you have the triremes, you set yourself up for a tyrant because because the triremes get paid with money and the money all goes through the, the central treasury and the guy who controls the central treasury, he might break ranks with you and yeah. pay the, pay the rowers to come to your house and seize all your stuff. What are you going to do? Right. So you, you gotta, you gotta find a way to hedge against that. And my suggestion is that that, that we call that Western political thought. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so so we can look at. There's an excellent book by James Tan um, that we read in. You're on the first Rome class, but the next one, the Punic Wars class, we read is is uh, Power and Public Finance in Rome. It's got some more words in the title. It, what that book shows you is that the Romans deliberately cultivated state incapacity. Right? It's it's not that, and this is what you like. You know, you go to the political science department or whatever, and they're just like, yeah, you know like um, state capacity, like that's good. Like people want that because then you can like do stuff with your state. Well, the Romans could have had a way more capable state. That was the last thing they wanted. They wanted a minimally capable state um, because the point of the state in the Roman Republic was to generate debt that could be held as assets on the book of elite Romans. So the, so, so the state, you know, the state comes in and taxes you, you're in the provinces and you say, Okay, I don't have any money. Like, uh, how am I going to pay the taxes? And then Cicero comes and says, "Hey, man, like, I'll loan you the money that you can use to pay the taxes, and you you convert state revenues into private uh, uh, credit." Um, mm. And and this is like the point of the of the Roman state. So yeah. you know, the last the last thing the Roman senators wanted was a powerful state that could tax and spend and manage everything. You know, it's the last thing they wanted. I mean, they mm. they ended. I mean, they ended up with it, right? I mean, that's. It's it, they didn't succeed in warding that off, but they they certainly tried. Yeah, so I mean, there's a way then you could probably take this to say that this Western political theoretical ethos is something that drives also a lot of the um, like anti-BRICS, anti-third world, anti-developing, anti-emerging economies, anti-development banks type of thinking because they're all contaminated by the big bad states. Um, and and so there's like this fear that is perpetually entrenched into 
Western yeah. liberalism insofar as it's defining itself in warding off the potential tyranny, yeah. quote unquote, of the outside other, which but is these, in the, in the these bad days West they call these East. days they call it communism, but this is communism, right, right, right. It's the same thing, right? So, yeah. so, so part of what I'm also trying to draw out here, right, is that you know, and I, I'm going to talk about this in my class uh, next weekend. When when John Wilkes Booth shoots Abraham Lincoln and recites a bit of made up Latin, it's not a real classical illusion, but he says "Six semper tyrannis," right? Thus, always the tyrant. Mm-hmm. He's he's not confused about tyranny, right? I mean, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a tyrant. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when 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 the anti-communists say that Lenin is a tyrant, yeah, he is. He's doing pirate shit. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? So this is people hate when I say this, especially the MMT guys. You know, when I'm, you know, MMT is tyranny, and that's good. We should do tyranny. You know, I mean, it's sort of a joke, but I'm not really joking. No, in, you're in using that. it ironically because the term tyranny, ty- tyranny is, and the yeah. tyrant is given kind of the negative connotation from the perspective of the people that can't allow for the sovereign to exhibit its power right. in a way that would be beneficial right. to, yeah. So so part of what I'm showing, and I, and I think this is just really obvious in the literature, you know, and and there's a book by James McGlue that is really good on this topic, you know, I mean, I mean, the fear of tyranny in Western political thought is and has always been the fear of state monetary regimes and the power of state monetary regimes and 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 the potential threat of state monetary regimes to completely sever the relation between sign and substance in mon- in money and mm. render it nothing but a sign that it can manipulate at will right i mean if if money is nothing but a sign that the state can manipulate at will then it can seize all the wealth of all the elites uh, just by proclaiming that it has done so um and it can cancel all the debts yeah it can yeah it can cancel all the debts right so 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 this is also you know this is related to the question of whether the king is a god or not right so so if when you say the king's not a god what you're saying is that the king can't cancel the debts or debase the money just because he wants to do it um that's that's kantorovich so so you know so my answer you know why does all this matter for for our politics today um you know because because it explains why it, it explains why the United States doesn't do MMT. And, 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 and the answer is that that's what the Constitution is for. That's the whole point of the Constitution. So if you want to say we should change the monetary regime system such that we focus on outcomes, right? So this is this is what they call functional finance that that uh, you know, we shouldn't care about the money. The balance sheet is is just an arbitrary thing. What we what we care about is what the real outcomes in the world and and we should just use the monetary system to uh, realize whatever outcomes we want in the world. That sounds very compelling. But that's tyranny. It's mm-hmm. it's not an it's not an exaggeration to say that that's tyranny because because the the reason that we don't focus on outcomes, the reason we don't do functional finance is because if we did functional finance, we would have to all agree about what the goal was. What are we trying to accomplish here? And well, the people who really matter, who have all the power, what they're trying to co- accomplish is being richer than us. And so if we said, let's do functional finance, they would say, yeah, great. So um you know, let's print money for all of the, you know, white people in private schools and, and we'll tax all the black people. And, and there you go. I mean, we've accomplished the goal that we want in the world. So 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 constitutional politics is about avoiding having to des- decide what we want to do in the world and 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 mm. and allowing money to constrain that instead. Right. So so what I'm 
try, my kind of intervention mm-hmm. here is to say, like, MMT is incredibly important as an intervention into monetary theory. I mean, I, I truly believe that Marxism can't survive the encounter with MMT. I mean, if you if you believe in Marxist economics and then you have to argue with the MMT people, you're going to have your whole system is going to come crashing down. And, and, and this happened to me. I mean, you know, but but just telling people about MMT doesn't make anything easier. In fact, it makes everything much harder because because now we're now I mean, you're you're talking about well, you're talking about the nomos. You're talking about nomos, meaning the distributional law of the household. That's really how you kind of translate that world. You're you're talking about the distribution of wealth in society. Well, what's what's the optimal level of inequality in society? I mean, I mean, what what level of inequality should we target? You know, I mean, how, how can you even argue about that question without wanting to kill each other? That's mm. that's that's my question. I say mm. you can't, and that and that's why people do kill each other over it, and 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 when they kill each other over it, that we call that monetary history. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I feel like we could keep. I mean, we've been talking for an hour and yeah. forty five minutes. I, I want to let you go. Um, I'd love to put a little ellipsis on the end of this, and maybe pick it up, and and chat further. Um, sure. My own my own research interests just so you can see kind of where, why I find this stuff so fascinating is um, I, my own research interests are more on kind of um, finance and the, what I kind of see as an inherent misunderstanding within discourses that try to theorize finance within the Marxian, Keynesian and critical finance literature who have certain assumptions about time and temporality. And Uh so I argue that they all are beholden to a certain type of formalism that can only think of time in the terms of what Deleuze would refer to as like extensional rather than intentional temporality. And as th- I think one of the ways it does that is through kind of like erecting a sort of like universal, like a, a mathesis universalis, right? Like a certain form of quantification that allows you to understand. And this is where Bergson kind of comes in and is influential for Deleuze is that as soon as you start thinking about time, you're spatializing time. And so actually what you get um, is a sort of um, abstract conception of temporality that is only understood within a particular regime of quantification. And that actually, if you kind of start thinking about time and temporality in different ways, it actually totally disrupts the Marxian, Keynesian, and most of the critical finance literature's conceptions of temporality as being like, you know, either a mortgage on the future or um, managing uncertainty in the Keynesian literature because it erects a, a side of a, a certain temporal logic. And so I'm really interested then is how can we rethink of of finance. And I think once we start to then change how we think of finance within different temporal paradigms, and in, in my kind of most recent literature, I'm looking at Deleuze's Three Syntheses of Time. It's it's weedy and technical. We don't need to get into it right now. But I think that it's just an interesting way for us to think about time differently. Once we start doing that, it changes how we think of finance as not me being like a gamble on the future. So all probabilistic theories of of finance kind of go out the window. It's not a mortgage on the future, but that actually it's about like a constructive performative activity of taking sign value that is accumulated in the past, that is accumulated in human tradition and figuring out ways to convert that through inscription through enclosure, privatization, and then turning that into productive mechanisms via pricing in forms of quantification that are then exchanged on the market. And I think that your work is really allowing me, and I think that's why James was like, dude, you got to check out this guy's stuff, um, is really allowing me to kind of like put a little bit more meat on the bones for thinking through how I'm understanding finance as essentially like 
a really efficient technology for translating or inscribing, reinscribing social meaning in productive terms. Yeah. And and so when I think of the financial crisis and what it essentially did, the value of 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 kind of like the re-territorializing that all of these financial institutions um, undertook is that what they did is they just figured out other ways to reinscribe meaning and do it under these different auspices that were institutionalized through new financial mechanisms. And right now I'm reading a lot about private credit and I'm it's like, an interesting yeah. word auspices. Mm. Di- div- divination with birds. O- ospreys. Ospreys. Yeah. You're talking no, no, about like... divination with birds. It's interesting that you brought that up. I just, yeah. Um, and I think that like private credit looking at this is like this new, it's like a $1.5 trillion market right now, which is basically these non-bank financial lenders who right. are kind of all coming together to be like, yeah, 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 we'll loan your kind of distressed asset portfolios or or whatever it is, um, or we'll put loans towards them and, and we'll fund your new like business operations out with the sort of traditional, um, you know, kind of banking mechanisms. And I think that they're doing that to meet a certain type of like, I don't know, investment I'd say, demand. I'd, or, I'd say I'd say that is the traditional banking mechanism. And the, yeah, the, it's the coming kind, back. The, the, the kind of bank where they have a license from the state and they're regulated and they have capital ratio requirement. That that's the you know, that's, that's the, the new thing. Yeah, that's yeah. The, it's, so it's kind of like it's coming back. It's nothing, it's like, it's hey, nothing new it's about a shadow bank. And and back in my day, we just called that a bank. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like friends being like, yeah, hey, you need you need right. money. It's well, just my friends. boys. Yeah, that's yes. Yeah, it's we'll, just we'll, friends. We'll that's important. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's 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 the the Roman elite is just a, a cabal of loan sharks, essentially. You know. Anyway, so uh, uh, let me give you your 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 point about time is is very important, and I'll maybe I'll leave you with a here's a bit of members thought that it's not in my Please dissertation. Do. This is the kind of stuff we yeah. talk about these days. I mean, time is not a transcendental. Uh, you can burn your Kant because uh, he's wrong. It there isn't just one time scale, right? The the problem is that the kind of phenomena that we're talking about are fractal mm-hmm. what does that mean it means the calculations we make about them are different depending on what scale we measure them at right they are not scale invariant um so you know the the famous mandelbrot thing is you know how long is the coast of britain and the answer is well it depends on how long your ruler is right i mean mm-hmm. so 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 things appear differently depending on what scale we measure them at and time well, this is, is the notion trans- of in this is the notion of intensity in Deleuze that's okay, different okay. from ex- extensionality. Yeah, okay. extensionality I, I is divisible, you. and yeah, 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 yeah. I believe you. So, so yeah. now there are a number of different timescales, and and one of the reasons that well, one of the reasons that you can't have a Black Scholes equation that you run hmm. forwards and predict what the prices are is because there isn't a time horizon that's objective in terms of which you can measure these things, right? So the so there there are different time horizons. Now, there are a number of different time horizons, but we could begin by thinking about the deep history of finance as characterized by a tension between two different time horizons. Now, what is a time like how does there get to be a time horizon well let me just make a hypothesis which is that time horizons are posited by metabolic processes every metabolic process has a time horizon that it posits as the time horizon mm. within which it needs to complete its cycle or else cease to exist so you, you see mm. so so metabolic processes 
posit time horizons that are intensive, I suppose, to, to their own process. And the deep history of finance is characterized by a tension between two different time horizons. One is the life cycle of an annual cereal plant, and the other is the life cycle of a human being. Mm. And all finance is about the difference between a, the time of a year, one agricultural calendar, and the time of a human generation. And it's not a coincidence that when William Petty, who invented economics, begins asking the question, how do we value capital assets, which he's really the first guy to ask that question in this particular economic way. The first thing he does is he says, well, how long does a man live? That's that's the next mm. question you need to answer in order to value a capital asset. So so there's a, there's a problem here about um, human generational time as the scale appropriate to the study of economic phenomena. And it is interesting to note in this regard that when the economics department studies economic history, they study in less than one. They extrapolate from a period of time that is less than one human generation because they studied World War II to the present. And the people who were born after World War II are still fucking alive. <laughs> so, so they are trying to extrapolate about a process that they haven't even witnessed complete itself once. Why, exactly. why the measure of a human life rather than maybe going back to yeah. the measure of the the court of the, the, the speculative supposition of the duration of the empire? Right. That's, so that's like, another time that matters too. Yes. So, okay. so, so, we, so we might add a third time onto what I just began with, which is the time of the dynasty. Okay. Yeah. That because that's what makes that's what's so fascinating to me about the U.S. Empire is the presumption is is that it's infinite, is that it will right. last in perpetuity. But it, but, it, but in order, but in order for the dynasty to be infinite, it has to know how succession works, and it has a succession, it has a potential succession crisis once a human generation. Hmm. That's that's the history of dynastic politics. So this this is why when I'm studying coinage, you very rapidly end up studying the family trees of European monarchs because, um, well, those things are very deeply related. So yeah, I, I can't go on. We, no, no, yeah, yeah, we we, we could go on <laughs> forever. It's 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 been two hours. I'm gonna let you go. I've yeah. taken up so much of your time. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, do you want to sure. give a plug? Uh, give a plug to upcoming classes. Yeah, or, yeah. Or so yeah. so yeah. So member school. Um, our website is Mimbres, that's M-I-M-B-R-E-S, uh, dot study dot garden. So Mimbres dot study dot garden. Uh, that's our website. There's not a ton up on there yet, um, but you can also email us at the Mimbres school at Gmail if you have any questions. And our basic subscription is $10 a month and you get access to this whole archive of classes we have. It's There's a bunch of it we do. I don't even know how much it is. We've been going for a couple of years now. There's, it's a, it's a lot. You, you probably can't even keep up with it. We're producing it faster than you can even watch it. So uh, we, we think it's it's a really great deal for $10 a month. We have some more expensive packages that you can buy, but um, you'll know you want that once you've uh, looked at the $10 a month stuff. And then, uh, so we just got started on classes. So if you're listening to this episode, it's too late to get into spring classes, but we will have classes this summer. And um Basically, the best way is to get into the Discord. So you can tweet at me. Um, is is send me a message on Twitter. It's uh, drum underscore Colin. Just tweet at me. Be like, hey, I heard you. I'm interested in member school, and I'll give you a link to the Discord, and you can come check out what we're doing in there. Sick. I'll put links down below in the show notes for people yeah, too, yeah, so they'll be able to. Get um, and That's... and if you, so I know you're coming from. You're in Australia. Is that is that? Right? I am. Yeah, I'm from oh. LA, but yeah, I'm in. I'm and yeah, I lived yeah. in the UK. For yeah, I was bit, expecting yeah, the Australian accent, and then I yeah, no, no, yeah. So. The, but yeah. the um, but we actually we would love to do classes on Australian hours because we could it would actually 
our Friday night is y'all Saturday morning. It would open up a new slot. I live in the middle of nowhere, so I don't go out on Friday night. You know, it's just another night to me. So <laughs> I would love to, I would love to be able to teach classes on Australian hours on Friday night. So if, if you get in the Discord, we have like a place where you can sign up for time zones and sign up for the Oceania hours. And we we would really love to we just don't have quite enough. We have a few Australian if we once we get more, we'll do stuff that is uh during better hours for y'all because I know it's difficult for it's difficult for y'all to come to our current live sessions. But we, we yeah. would actually love to. So get in Discord, sign up for hours, and we'll try to target some stuff at y'all. Fuck yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'd Like I said, man, I'd, I'd love to talk more. There's yeah. so much stuff, too, with regards to, like, the Jubilee and religion and, and Christianity and debt yes. and political theology. And and then we didn't even get to talk about the race, um, like your finance, right. your race and finance stuff, which is so interesting. How does race fit into all of this? I People who listen to the podcast, we've talked quite a bit about Afro-pessimism as well on the uh-huh. podcast. Last episode, actually, we um, we chatted a bit about like Moten and um, kind of maybe maybe he's more of an, an Afro-optimist, maybe. But, um, yes. but yeah, definitely, definitely really interested in at least taking seriously the kind yeah. of uh, the, the the movement um, that comes out of Afro- Afro-pessimism and the perpetuation of slavery and debts and all this yeah. shit. So, this so I'd love to. Very, I'd love very to central to what we talk about every day at the member school. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, um, well thanks, thank you. Austin. Thanks so much. Yeah. Have a good one. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Uh, that was great. Thank you uh, so much to everybody for tuning in. And um, and it was a it was a heavy conversation. A lot of a lot of stuff. Well, not heavy in like a moral sense, but a lot of technical stuff going on there. Um, so hopefully it gives you plenty of, of food for thought to kind of do your own digging and unpacking and thinking and considering and questioning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as Colin said, definitely check uh, check out the Mimbris School and all the work that they're doing. Really great stuff. Um, and of course, you know, like uh, and subscribe to our shit as well. You can find us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn, Insta, owls at dawn podcast at gmail.com. And you can support us at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Troy will be back next week and uh, we'll be chatting about a topic that has not been described or or um, set down yet but you know we'll figure something out for y'all and um just one last thing of housekeeping at the patreon we're still taking suggestions for the next patron suggested episode topic so please run over to patreon if you're already a uh, if you're already a subscriber run over to patreon and tell us what do you want us to talk about for our next patron led episode and uh, then we'll put up a poll and we'll get that nailed down in the next couple weeks here so we can um, do something that uh, that interests y'all. All right, we love you. Thank you very much. Peace. Late. Have a good one. Bye.